Welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay. And welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay Formula One edition. Just a little bit of news for us to go through this week, and then we're going to take a break from the news and discuss a race from the past that is widely debated 15 years later. So there's been some rumors going around that Monaco, Montreal, and one other race around that time would be removed from the 2021 calendar due to COVID restrictions. Uh, Racers Chris Medland has already come out and said that is not true. He has not heard that anywhere. And the Monaco Grand Prix Association themselves said that this this is completely false. The race will go on. The the Monaco E Prix for Formula E will go on, and there's another like historic race, I think, a couple weeks prior that is also still going on. So, I don't know. Is there anything to make of this back and forth? I don't want to call it nonsense, but badgering right now. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a good time to be skeptical of all things schedule. I think if it was a race that canceled last year, there's at least some chance they may cancel again this year. It's just, you know, again, kind of hard to see where the world's going to be in a couple of months. But I think since the principalities, countries, et cetera, have had a chance to kind of get up to speed with COVID and, you know, we've learned a lot more about it in a year. I, I do think that most of the races will go forward this year. And I do think if Monaco and its association has come out saying it's going to happen, I feel very confident that it will happen. Uh, I don't, I didn't miss the race itself, but I kind of missed everything else about Monaco, like the pageantry and the chance to show off to sponsors and et cetera. Um, so I'll be happy that it's back for that side of it. And it does produce a, a dramatic moment here and there nowadays, but um, not the best race, but I do still think it holds a very valuable spot on the schedule. I mean, plus you can win a chance to hang out with Danica Patrick on a yacht this year. Yeah, have they struck that down because of COVID yet, or are we still going forward with I that? Have no idea, but we're gonna we're gonna pretend it's still going forward for the sake of the fact that I just said it. If I if I like somehow win, or if we end up entering Jess's name 150 times, can we put in a special request that due to COVID we have to be 600 feet away from her at all times? Yeah, that's totally fair. I. <laughs> I mean, I just, that, I just would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, just would just would appreciate that more more than I would. So, what else do we have before our topic of the day? Yeah, it was a slow news week. Some of the other minor headlines of the week. Uh, Lando Norris was asked kind of why he's not as quote unquote fun on social media anymore, and he just says, you know, after down race, he doesn't want to get misconstrued as not taking his job seriously. So some of his rhetoric has changed a little bit, especially after something bad happens in a race. Changing racing point on the buildings and mastheads is very difficult, apparently, to Aston Martin and requires a lot of work. I guess I don't know the finer mechanisms of that. Yeah, I mean, made the rundown this morning. It was kind of just a slow news week, which means we got a good discussion coming up here in a second to fill the time. The only other one that really came up was Eddie Jordan, the former Formula One owner from 91 to 05 and then turned racing commentator. I don't know if he's still with Sky. I don't I don't see him on TV ever, really, so I don't think he is. Yeah, I'm not sure. He came out today and said, or this week, and said that if he were running Mercedes, he would have shown Lewis Ham- or, sorry, Sir Lewis Hamilton the door by now. <laughs> what do you so we kind of discussed it last week that maybe Mercedes, Downer, etc. are using 
uh, the media as a negotiation tactic against Sir Lewis Hamilton. But do you think Eddie has a point there if he were running the team? No, he doesn't have a point. I can kind of understand where where he's coming from, but co- contracts for somebody with the magnitude of Lewis Hamilton, whether it be Lewis Hamilton or Kyle Busch or Scott Dixon or you know anybody else in a sport, these these contracts don't happen overnight. So if they're working out some of the finer details and going back and forth, I don't see why we need to show Sir Lewis Hamilton the door right now. I just think it's really stupid. I, I just listen. If if you don't like him, you don't like him. Fine, but why are we we why are we kicking him out of the team? It's it's not like he's doing anything wrong. I don't I don't know. I just I don't see the point in this one at all. I think it's very silly. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one, the whole contract thing. We keep discussing every week. I think the key for Mercedes is figuring out when Lewis's cliff is. I don't know how old Lewis is. Is he like 35, somewhere around there? Give me a second here. He is 30. He just turned 36 last uh, 12 days ago. Okay, so he's 36. So, you know, every great driver has a cliff at some point where, unfortunately, for one reason or another, you know, either the brakes don't start going their way anymore or they have a spin here and there. You can look at Vettel. You can look at Schumacher. You can look at Manzel. Everybody has a cliff at some point. So I think Lewis is still a good bit away from his cliff. And... Therefore, I still think signing him is the best method, even though I would still rather see George. But I, taking bias out of it, you know, I think Lewis is obviously still one of the best drivers in the world. And Eddie was, uh, he had some questionable ownership decisions in his day. Main one was, uh, yeah, main one was firing Heinz Harold Frenson right before the German Grand Prix in 2001, I think it was. That was, uh, not the best not the best idea, we'll say. And one that he got a lot of grief for. Right boy, so. Yeah. So he yeah, he is a commentator. I'll give him that. He does have takes, which is good for people like us to discuss. I just don't know if I agree with this one. Yeah. I just don't it's also January and now we have about three months and a week, give or take a day or two, until the first Formula One race. I, I think testing is what mid mid February end of February. I honestly don't remember. That might change given the state of COVID and, and the world. We never know. So, is there really a rush to get the contract done? No, there's there's no rush to get the contract done. So I, I think right now, you know, any back and forth and Eddie Jordan going, I wouldn't have him there. Well, yeah, you also are, are no longer a team owner, and probably goes to show why you shouldn't be making decisions. Yeah, and also Bernie Ecclestone came out this week and said it should, he wants to have it done or wants to see it done. Wasn't he the crank who ribbed Lewis for his activism way back? Wasn't he like one of those shut up and drive kind of folk? Yeah, I mean, anything... You, you pitfalled him at one point. <laughs> we, we could pitfall Bernie Ecclestone for a number of things he's done over his, his career for like until you and I are at actual retirement age so including probably part of our next discussion point in the yeah. so 
I, I take no credence in anything Bernie Ecclestone criticizes. Yeah, I mean, it actually is a pretty good segue here. So that's unfortunately all the news we had uh, for the week. Not a whole lot to discuss again. But uh, we are going to shift into uh, times like these where we have a little moment here and there. We're going to discuss some past Formula One things or just our overall thoughts on former races, former drivers, etc. And so this one is one of the most infamous moments in Formula One history. It's the 2005 U.S. Grand Prix. Before we get to the meat of it and kind of discuss, you know, what happened, what led up to it, our thoughts on it, would something like this happen nowadays, etc. Uh, I first want to get Mike's take on if he has any memory of the race, if he was a Formula One fan at the time, was this something that he read about 15 years later, five years later, two years later? Just kind of gauging where you were at 2005 for that race. Oh, I was a fan. I, since I was old enough to remember watching racing, have tuned in year after year, even the good years, the bad years, pretty much across all motorsports. I I don't remember specifically like that day being like, oh my God, this is a tragedy because 2005, I was in college. There might've been some beverages consumed that weekend. So I'm sorry, you know, 2005, I was still in high school. Either way, it's been a long time. <laughs> I was not consuming beverages in high school. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I, I, I remember the week after watching whatever racing news, you know, speed sport or whatever was on at the time and just being like, what the hell just happened the past weekend? Like it was one of those like just I still can't really wrap my head around the ridiculousness of it. Yeah, it was. I was uh, not a fan, but you know, looking back on it now, I, I just shake my head. Um, I, I think the first Formula One race I remember watching, because it was really tough as a kid when you didn't have Speed Channel. So, one of those was on. They did like four races a year on Fox, and I think it used to be like France, Montreal, USA, and one other. And I think it might have been France that year was the first. And oh, I'm sorry, not that year. France in 07 was the first race I've watched for Formula One, somewhere around there. So, yeah, so obviously I did not watch this race and I didn't hear about it slash read about it till several years into my fandom of F1. So right when I was in high school, kind of just a, it, it's, it's really tough to keep this short. We're going to do our best, though. So kind of a brief overview of what happened is... Formula One came to Indianapolis in 2000 for the first time, and uh, Tony George went out of his way to build an infield to accommodate the road course, and you know, garages were upgraded, etc. Uh, so the first basically five years, the race went on, went on without a hitch. Um, some good races. The 04 race was a little marred by Ralph Schumacher's crash in the final turn. Uh, for those who... I have never seen a Formula One race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Their final turn is the same turn as turn one for Indy cars going on the left way. Uh, but the Formula One course turn one for the Indy cars is actually the final turn and they go backwards. And so Ralph Schumacher had a tire failure in that turn and I believe broke his back and was knocked unconscious. So not a good moment there. Also, one of those years, I think it was 02, Ferrari was having a field day and decided to try and 
finish dead even just because they were feeling up for it and Schumacher had already clinched his title. Uh, so that was annoying. Uh, but otherwise, it was, it was pretty smooth. And then coming into 05, two main things happened. First, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, repaved the track. And instead of doing a conventional repave, they used diamond cutters to cut the grooves and whatnot into the track and do the diamond cut repave. Uh, which is not something that's very common around the the world. It's, it's expensive, but the track becomes very durable and um, bumps basically do not happen. So for the Indianapolis 500, that's great news because you do not want bumps at 240 miles an hour. The second was that there was a rule change for 2005 in Formula 1 that says you are not allowed to change tires in the middle of the race unless it rained or unless you had a puncture of some kind. I kind of want to start with number two, Mike. Let's just skip the why and go to what on earth were they thinking with that rule change? Listen, we've given NASCAR and other racing series a lot of grief for rule changes that they've made over the years, but the... No tire changing has to be the worst rule change of all time. And I get it. I mean, I shouldn't say I get it. Okay, it was done because Ferrari was so dominant the year before because they figured out a really good pitch strategy that other teams couldn't keep up with. Well, maybe instead of changing the strategy to hamper one team, other teams should go, hmm, that's working. We should try that too. Instead, Bernie Ecclestone pulled his let's put sprinklers in the grass so we can have a wet race type of deal and said, let's just get rid of tire changing altogether. And one other note before you continue, Charlotte Motor Speedway, I think if I remember correctly, also did diamond grading. And a month before the, I don't know if it was a month before the Indy 500 or if it was a month before the U.S. Grand Prix, NASCAR ran there, ran 100 of the 400 laps under caution, and was using, was they, were they using Goodyear then, or were they using Michelin back then? Either way, the Michelin teams should have seen that as a sign of, hey, maybe we should be better prepared instead of just completely ignoring what we saw in the NASCAR world. But I'll just leave it at that. At that, at that. One thing I like to do when I watch a season so example if i'm watching the 2004 season about halfway through the year i kind of like to cheat and kind of look at the wikipedia page for the 2005 season and see what drivers changed what teams came up if there was new teams or departing teams and then if there's any major rule changes from one year to the next so in 2004 when i'm watching it or when i'm watching the 2004 season i look at 2005 and see they're taking away tire changes and i'm like oh hang on a second there's been about five or six instances already halfway through the 2004 season where we have had someone had a tire failure on like a 20 lap stint. How on earth are these guys going to make it through a full race? I, I and just think it cost Kimi Raikkonen a win when he crashed. Right. And they still didn't change it after that. No. <laughs> and it's just like, well, come on. Like, what are you, what is this doing? I can't, that, there's no way that would have flown. They would not be able to get away with that nowadays. There's, there's just no way. I think with social media the way it is, if that had happened to, if Lando Norris was leading 
And on the final lap, because he couldn't change tires, this tire failed. There would be safety campaigns. There would be his army of followers who want Simon Pagano fired would be on FIA's back. There yeah, just... are still people who want Simon Pagano fired, by the way. I'm not surprised. <laughs> There's just no way that would happen nowadays. So that I I want to say I get where they're coming from, but I honestly don't. I think there were more productive ways to try and slow down Ferrari if that's what their tactic was, because I just think it was not the best course of action. But anyways, so we show up to the U.S. Grand Prix with a new surface and new rules, and it doesn't take long for teams to realize that for the Michelin teams, so this is a Michelin-centric issue, that something's not right. Ralph Schumacher, who I said got knocked out in the 04 race and was out for several races after he recovered from his injuries, uh, in practice two, his tire failed again in the exact same spot. Thankfully, a much lighter impact, and I use lighter with quotation marks because it was still probably like 140 miles an hour, but it wasn't you know, rear end first at 170 or whatever the year before. Uh, but he walked away and... His substitute, Ricardo Zanta, went out, and his tire also failed. And Michelin teams, which was, at that point, 14 of 20 cars, were basically given a memo by Michelin stating that if you are running our tires in the race, they will not last, and you will be forced to retire. I don't even know if they gave him a recommendation. They just said, these tires will not make it. So... Michelin and all the teams got together before the race. They qualified still, so Yarno truly got the pole for Toyota, which is a big deal for them because they're uh, on the ups and investing a lot of money and doing a great job. Had some pretty good results in 05. Um, the most forgotten pole in Formula 1 history is Yarno truly is there. It's still clear that they're not going to be able to make it through the race. So before the race, they all get a meeting or whatever and try to hash it out. And some of the solutions they come up with are adding a chicane right before the final turn. I don't know if postponement was discussed, but it should have, or maybe a reschedule, or at least they should have adjusted. They should have considered that allowing tire changes in the race was one. I I think the FIA also said, well, you could just drive through pit lane every lap. (laughs) What? Right. So they're trying, but because of such the, the FIA and Bernie Ecclestone, Max Mosley, there's just no easy way for them to come up with a solution without angering somebody. Uh, and then you have Ferrari, who's driving with Bridgestone. And Bridgestone, whose three teams were Ferrari, Minardi, and Jordan, uh, since they have Firestone to lean on for technology information from the Indy 500, Bridgestone's tires were perfect. They, they had no flaws for this banking or this, this diamond-cut surface. And Michelin did not have that data. And so Ferrari's like, well... Not our problem. We show up with tires that work from Bridgestone. And on one hand, it's like you can kind of see where they come from. On the other hand, like, well, that's not very sporting of you. So if you were Mike Jokomore fly on the wall in that room and you had a loud voice that people could hear, what solution would you have pushed for? And what, as the, if you were also, let's say, a hypothetical leader within the FIA or Formula One, what would you have done to try to avoid such a disastrous moment? 
Oh boy, you're putting me, you're giving me a lot of power right now. I know it's all hypothetical, but yeah, you know, it's, it's tough because the FAI said to Michelin, well, find harder tires and ship them overseas. It's really hard to do when you, in such a short period of time. And they said, well, okay, you can then change tires, but you won't get championship points. Well, okay, but now they can't ship enough tires over in time. So no matter what solution the FIA had, there was a logic, pretty logical counter-argument to that. The chicane that the Michelin team said, hey, we can put in turn 13, or you know, can we... Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! actually pit or do something to slow the cars down a little bit so we can last this race seemed a little bit better to me it seemed a little bit more reasonably reasonable to me than anything the FIA came up, came up with i don't know man i i think if i were anything uh it, from the FIA side or or the team side and i was running a michelin car the first thing i would have done is looked at the nascar race from charlotte motor speedway and figured out well, what went what went wrong there for twenty two cautions, a hundred laps, a quarter of the race run under caution, and tried to learn something from that instead of going in and just going, 
well, we don't have any test data. We don't have Firestone data like Bridgestone does, so we're just going to go in blind. I think that right there is one of the biggest errors in this whole thing is the lack of preparation. So I would have been more prepared. Or if I was a Michelin team, I would have started raising hell and asked in advance, wow, we saw all of this, and you know, can we do something about it? At least, you know, get Michelin thinking or get the FIA thinking instead of that weekend. You know, once it's the weekend, it's too late. There's nothing you can do that weekend. You could have postponed the race, sure, but then you alienate all the fans like you end up doing anyway. So I, I really feel like the only logical thing in my head right now is Michelin and the teams should have done their homework well in advance. They knew what the track surface was going to be. Even if they couldn't test, they could have done, I don't know, some sort of simulation, wind tunnel. I don't know what the technology was back in 2005 at at the moment, but there was something I'm sure they could have done in advance of the race weekend that they didn't do. Yeah, I mean, someone messed up somewhere, uh, for sure. And while that's all in good that someone messed up, like, you know, mistakes happen, oversights happen, no matter the scale of the series, there has to be some sort of system in place, though, to remedy in these situations. So, like, yeah, that mistake happened. But now you, can, you can't really dwell on the past. You can try to prevent it going forward in the future and just say, okay, we need to do this, this, and this next time we go to a new track or a new surface or whatever. And obviously, on a much, much smaller scale, you can kind of look at Turkey this year and been like, okay, well, how did nobody know that the surface was going to be that bad for Turkey when cars are unable to put any sort of amount of grip or traction down because the grip is so bad, much smaller scale and nobody canceled the race or anything, but still, but I just look at their system and their model with leadership. And I can almost guarantee you that an Indy car, you know, there's Jay Fry, there's Mark miles, there's Roger Penske. That would not happen. There, there would not be some sort of, you know, sorry, we're, all the Michelin teams have to go home and, and we're just going to run six cars today and they get points. The, I, I feel like there's IndyCar would have come up with a solution, communicated that they would have listened to everybody's feedback, communicated their decision-making process to, for the betterment of the sport and then just moved forward. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things that, you know, I've watched plenty of YouTube videos. There's some great ones out there. I've read articles and articles and articles and, I just can't get past the fact that the Michelin wasn't prepared. The FIA gave teams awful suggestions. I mean, they might as well said, why don't you just ride an airplane around and see if you can come close to the lap times of the Bridgestone teams. Bridgestone did their homework. Yes, they had the Firestone advantage, but I think the bottom line is all of this kerfluffle is what you get when you have a stupid and unnecessary tire war. Can can we safely say that, especially going forward, whenever IndyCar or F1 comes out with a new tire compound, let's say in the next couple of years, you know, when F1 is supposed to go to the 18-inch tires, we should just stick with one tire manufacturer. Yeah, I think that's something we discussed on a prior episode that I would love to see another tire manufacturer come in and have another tire war. So I think this is kind of just like a extreme circumstance and 
Uh, Michelin definitely dropped the ball, that's for sure. But yeah, I don't want to have that detract from the fact that it kind of, it's kind of like a one-off and that tire wars as a whole still can have positive outcomes for the sport. But that may be for another day. So actually for the race itself. So basically we get to the grid. Martin Brundle's doing his grid walk and looks in the camera and says, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Because everybody who was watching the broadcast around the world could kind of see what was coming. Is that nobody could come to the decision. Ferrari was going to race. Apparently Jordan and Minardi had some sort of handshake agreement that they wouldn't race. Uh, but then Minar- or Jordan backed out of it and decided to race anyway. So then Minardi was like, well, we need the points too, so we're not just going to let you do it. Um, and But on the formation lap, every Michelin team pulled in and retired their car. So six cars started out of 20. Uh, Schumacher and Barrichello battled. Uh, there was one basically memorable moment where coming out of the pits, uh, Schumacher held off Barrichello, and Barrichello had to take to the grass. Uh, a bunch of fans threw debris on the track uh, out of anger and frustration, and the race ended with Schumacher winning Barrichello second and Tiago Montero for Jordan getting his first career podium. Asterisk. Only career podium. Asterisk <laughs> in his P3. I think kind of a, a sum up the day moment is Tiago Montero gets out there, Schumacher, Barrichello get their trophy, get the bottle of champagne, take both of them and promptly walk off the stage. Montero, I think sprayed everybody with champagne and jumped up and down and around. and was like the happiest man alive. And he reportedly partied with his team for multiple hours after the race. Like good for you, bro. Yeah. Well done. Ultimately six cars ended up racing uh, disgruntled fans who'd paid a lot of money either to travel to or just attend the race itself uh, were left pretty distraught and looking for answers. And a lot would come out. So not only was this just a, a farce for that whole weekend, but there was a lot of legalities that needed to be figured out afterwards. One of them was that it's just like one of those commercials, like they're selling you a product and then there's like, but wait, there's more. This story just never ends. It's just like there's so many layers to this whole thing. One of them was that the, I think it was the FIA was charging the seven teams who ran Michelin tires. They were basically holding them in contempt for not racing the race, even though Michelin told them, codes. Yeah. yeah, Michelin told them not to. And out of, you know, the best interests of the safety of their drivers and whatnot, they just decided, yeah, we're not going to race. But the FIA was not happy about that and was trying to sue them. And their way around it, according to, you know, various sources and whatnot, is the seven teams cited this law from Indiana that states that you can't knowingly put your workers in harm's way without remedying it or protecting them or something and so because michelin was telling them that their drivers were in danger if they were to race they cited that law as a way around it and the courts agreed (laughs) which is i don't know i didn't think indiana's laws would be the savior of the day for the teams here so they basically they weren't punished as a whole uh let me jump in here. Yeah, real quick I got nothing. While you, while you gather your thoughts. Yes. Essentially, what the courts ruled is that the FIA could have been held in uh, for manslaughter 
if something had happened, God forbid something happened to one of the Michelin teams, which is unfortunate to even think about. But yeah, who would have thought that this was resolved by an Indiana court with the FIA? There was a bunch of charges that got dismissed right away. And and two, like you said, that stuck that eventually got dismissed in the end. They were originally, I don't really know if you want to say convicted, but they were originally charged with whatever sporting code violations. And they went to the court and said, well, if you're going to do this, we're going to go to the court and argue manslaughter. And it worked. That's, that's a, that's a ballsy move. Yeah. It's just another, again, just part of the story that just, it just keeps going. There's just kind of like no end to the story. And now it's, you know, like we're doing right now, you know, this is one of those things that's just discussed all the time among F1 fans. Um, so obviously a dark day. I, I was super thankful. Uh, I think the next race was in France and, you know, watching the grid walk, watching the previous, obviously it was a headline of how bad it was, but I think as a whole, the formula one community and teams and whatnot, kind of like just collectively moved on. Like, yeah, that was a terrible moment for the sport. Let's try not to repeat that again, but they, they moved on the 2006 race at the U S grand prix went on without a hitch. Uh, as far as tires, uh, there was, I think nine, nine or 10 retirements within the first, uh, I know it was like, maybe it was, oh, there's 22 cars that year. So there, yeah, there was about seven to nine retirements within the first eight laps of the race, uh, from crashes, um, which was unfortunate, but, but no tire issues that weekend. So that was good. Michelin did a whole lot of marketing and a whole lot of campaigns to get fans back to the track. Uh, they gave away a lot of free tickets, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, they went on major PR offensive to try to save face because it was a terrible moment for their company. Um, by the time we got to 2007, it was the last U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis uh, for c- contract reasons, not tire reasons. Uh, Michelin was out, out of the sport altogether. Uh, so it was just down to Bridgestone from 07 to whenever Pirelli took over, like 2012 or so. I guess it's kind of the final take on it is... Where does it rank among kind of the more memorable moments in Formula One history? And then part two is, do you see anything close to this insane ever happening again in Formula One? Before we get there, I do have to give a shout out to Jess's favorite IndyCar track, Cleveland, whatever it was called, airport, who Michelin gave a bunch of free... If if you had a ticket stub to Indy, for the U.S. Grand Prix, you got to go to the Cleveland Champ Car Race the next weekend for free. So I know Jess was probably super excited. She was probably first in line. Anyway, your question, where does this rank in terms of memorable F1 moments? And what was the second part of your question? Is something insane, insane like, because, like, you know, I already brought up Turkey, which was a little weird, but, like, the race went on. It rained anyways, so there wasn't a whole lot of grip anyways. So... Kind of just one of those something for drivers to complain about, but not catastrophic by any means. So this is definitely, man, it's hard to rank things. In terms of bad things that have happened, it's definitely one of the top three most negative PR moments you could get with F1, at least in recent memory. Thankfully, nobody was seriously injured, but it's it's got to be up there. I'm trying. I don't really know what else I would put up there. I guess maybe the unfortunate uh, Jules Bianchi accident of a handful of years ago with the 
crane thing that was in the way there, but I, yeah, it's, it's one of the worst. It's just one of the worst because it was so horribly mismanaged. It could have been avoided to some degree. Will anything like that happen again? I don't think so. I think the F1 paddock, you know, all teams seem to be on the same page. I think the COVID pandemic has actually kind of strengthened the bond between teams, at least in terms of communication. So I don't think we'll see anything like half the teams pulling off the grid unless there is some crazy issue with a new chassis or or the 18 inch tire if and when that ever comes out but they'll do they'll do plenty of testing and i think again if a, a something concerns like this will come up the race would simply be postponed and and moved i think covid again has shown that the faa is relatively flexible or will try to be relatively flexible now especially since dinosaur ecclestone is no longer in charge yeah. Does that mean? No. Yeah, so I think outside of any sort of fatality, I think it's definitely one of the worst moments in Formula 1 history. And, and different than, we'll say, you know, again, outside of a fatality, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the major controversies. Not a whole lot comes to, up to mind that compare on this level. And... Like, like I said, or like Mike said, and I've said, you know, like this, this was just one of those things that was avoidable. You know, you could have, there's, there had to have been something better than just racing with six cars. So, um, I think as a whole, it was a good learning moment. I think it made the sport better, even though it was really stupid at the time. And then, yeah, as far as nowadays, you know, the, I still can't wrap my head around how much power Ferrari had at that time period in Formula One. You know, Jean Tott, he was ruthless. Ross Braun was ruthless. Michael Schumacher was ruthless. Um, they honestly didn't care about anything other than winning and their brand. And if that meant putting your foot down and saying we're racing with six cars because we brought the right tire, then we're going to do it. And I just feel like that sort of mentality is not too common in Formula One anymore. I think... The most we get nowadays is teams threatening to quit. Uh, Ferrari and Red Bull have both threatened to quit a couple times in the last five, six years. But that sort of rhetoric has also really calmed down with social media. Uh, I think either of them quitting Formula One would be really bad for their brands because they both have such tremendous exposure right now. So I think they're going to be in it for the long haul. We got the Concord Agreement that's been signed by all the teams. So I feel like this new era of Formula One, everybody's kind of on the same page for the betterment of the sport. We have budgets coming in. We have new cars that are going to increase the the spectacle of racing. So I think everybody's on the same page. So I do think if something like this happened again, everybody would get to sit down and just be like, okay, what's the best move for the sport here? And they would just come to a decision and, and execute it. So I don't think something's going to like, like this is going to happen again. I hope not at least. Um, We'll be here to discuss it if it does, though. I guess uh, we don't want any, not, we yeah. don't we don't want any more horrible PR nightmares for Formula One because with the like we've been saying this day and age in social media, it would uh, travel the globe quite quickly and become a very hot news topic around the world. 
Yeah, we already have to deal with Hosh Driver number two, and that's enough PR nightmare for me to deal with for one or multiple seasons. That's true. That 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 should factor into the top ten list somewhere for sure. Hosh oh, Driver yes. number two, and we're not even he hasn't even started a race yet, and he's already <laughs> making records. Well, on that note, anything else? No. I guess if you have any uh deep dives you want yeah. us to do, just let us know on Twitter. I sure love doing these kind of things. I hope uh, you guys enjoyed it. I hope Mike enjoyed it. This was just kind of like the first one that came to my hand. Like, what's something we could fill time with? Discuss this yeah. stupid There's race. <laughs> available online. Right. Yeah, we'll do some more of these for sure in the offseason. They're a lot of fun. And anytime we can bash Bernie Ecclestone, I'm definitely on board with that. <laughs> but we'll wrap it up there, guys. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week with more. And have a good weekend. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.